You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Arna Ionescu-Stoll, who has deep experience developing complex, multi-touchpoint healthcare products that integrate seamlessly into people's lives. As the Chief Executive Officer at Waverly Diagnostics, she's guiding Waverly's technology through development and into viable commercial markets based on her decades of experience developing high-impact, innovative healthcare products that solve real human needs. Arna has been part of the digital health community since before the term digital health was coined, and she has served as executive consultant and senior advisor to various healthcare, digital health, and medical device companies. She holds a bachelor's in computer science and a minor in modern dance from Princeton University and a master's in computer science, human-computer interaction from Stanford University. This one's really a special one for me because not only my investor, but I went to elementary school with Arna, and we'll touch on that a little bit. She's got nine employees, funding last year announced of $2.2 million. In this episode, we discuss virtual care and barriers to bring it to scale. We talk about how to bring a product to market and how to work with academic co-founders, how mission-driven messages resonate differently with employees and investors, and how to build a parent-friendly workplace, and much, much more. I think you'll enjoy it. So please stay tuned. Arno, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. So tell me, can parents really diagnose their children with ear infections? Using the cell phones that you have in your pockets, they can. So what we're working on at Waverly is an app that can allow a parent to diagnose their kid's ear infection in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. when the need inevitably arises. So the app itself detects middle ear fluid, which is the key physical indicator of an ear infection. And then using the app, they can connect to a pediatric specialist that can conduct the, the remainder of the diagnosis that's needed and also prescribe medication and have it sent to your nearest pharmacy if the child needs it. So when you first told me about this, I was imagining someone turning on their camera and trying to video inside their child's ear, but you're talking about something different. Yeah, so we're using a technique called acoustic reflectometry that was developed actually quite a few years ago, quite a couple decades ago, but it's, it's underutilized right now. So what we do is we bounce a sound wave off of the eardrum, we pick up the reflection, and then based on the shape of that reflection, we can determine whether it bounced off an eardrum that has fluid behind it or air behind it. It's a much better way of identifying middle ear fluid than trying to use a camera and get a picture of the eardrum. There's really good research out there about how it's actually not that accurate to identify middle ear fluid using a picture, using a camera. And it gets even harder when you have a parent try to take that picture because the parent doesn't really understand the anatomy of the ear canal. Um, and you know the kid is a lot less compliant with the parent in terms of staying still. So a number of the physicians that we've spoken with actually abandoned trying to have parents use a digital otoscope at home because they couldn't get a clinically useful picture. 
our approach with acoustics is much more likely to result in a clinically useful assessment of middle ear fluid. So I'm imagining it's like sonar or someone looking for oil underground with sound waves that now you can use it at home with your iPhone or your, your smartphone in your child's ear. I just was totally blown away when you first told me about it. It's a pretty neat technique. There's a lot we can do with acoustics that we're not yet doing. And there's a lot we can do with cell phones that we're not yet doing with all of these creative techniques to leverage the the sensors that are on our phones. And you're right about the sonar. It is kind of a similar type type of principle where what comes back looks different based on what it bounced off of. In this case, the eardrum reflects sound very differently if it's taut because it's being held taut by fluid in the middle ear, or if it's flowy and bouncy because it's got air behind of it. The reflection of that sound wave looks very different in those two instances, which is how we can tell the difference. You said that there's a lot more we could be doing. Are you thinking about additional products? Absolutely. So at Wavely, we're starting with ear infections. But the idea is to build a comprehensive suite of smartphone-based diagnostics for pediatric care. We think ear infections is, an, is a great place to start. In some ways, it's, it's the gateway application to virtual care. One of the things that we've been hearing from organizations is that they're looking for ways to get people to use virtual care. There's a lot of things to like about virtual care. It's more efficient. It increases access, which is huge. It gets healthcare into communities where people can't get to the clinic as easily, like rural communities. And it's really important that we continue to expand access and continue to expand um, the types of things that people can treat using their cell phones and using virtual care. And the thing about ear infections is that it allows us to, to, to get that foot in the door with people. So it's a very urgent need. Your child is not feeling well, their ear is hurting, they're pulling at their ear. And it's the time when you can really capture a parent and change their behavior. The knee-jerk reaction is to go to a clinic. But when your kid is really suffering from an ear infection and it's two in the morning, that's the time that we can change their behavior and get them to actually use virtual care. On the provider side, it's the perfect gateway application because providers are also resistant to changing their behaviors. But when it comes to ear infections, it's a relatively low risk application from a clinical perspective. And it's relatively easy to treat virtually as long as you have the right information and the right tools. So again, it's the right application to get providers to be on board with virtual care. Once we get someone using virtual care the first time, there's a lot of data out there about how once you use it once, you're much more likely to use it the second time. And so ear infections are the place to start because it gets people using virtual care. And then we can continue expanding their usage of virtual care with a full portfolio or suite of smartphone-based medical diagnostics. Now, can you share how you got involved with the company? Sure. So the company itself uh, came out of, out of the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. It was a collaboration between a, a lab in the computer science engineering department and pediatric otolaryngology. And they, uh, the academics that were working on, on the core technology that were commercializing, they formed the company and then were running the company alongside their academic jobs. 
I got to know them. I knew one of the professors from one of the other companies that had spun out of his research and they brought me in and I started helping them as a senior advisor and very quickly got roped into doing more than a senior advisor typically does in terms of designing the app, in terms of defining the go-to-market strategy, in terms of negotiating the license agreement with the university. And slowly, slowly, as uh, as I got more and more engaged, I saw the enormous opportunity that there is here to fundamentally shift the way healthcare is delivered for kids, which I think is really important and particularly impactful for families that can't easily get to a clinic on, on a moment's notice. And so um, at that point, uh, as I got more and more engaged, they started talking to me as well about potentially taking on a, a larger role within the company. And next thing I knew, uh, I had uh, decided, I had agreed to, to 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 join as the chief executive officer and and took on the new challenge. Now, do you consider this your first startup? So it's interesting because I, I feel as if throughout my entire career, everything I've done has always had a startup quality to it. This is the first time I'm a CEO, but my first step in my career, I was at a global innovation and design firm called IDEO. And this was 20 some years ago. And I saw this opportunity and this pattern of companies that were starting to use technology to facilitate healthcare delivery. What I did is I, is I started within IDEO, what was called a domain, it's essentially a, a, a small business unit that was called Connected Health and was focused on supporting these companies that were novelly using technology to facilitate healthcare delivery. In some ways that was an entrepreneurial experience because I created this, this, this new focus within the healthcare practice there. My next step after IDEO was at a startup that I joined when it was relatively small and I was there through its growth to 1.5 billion in valuation, which again, I wasn't the CEO, I wasn't uh, executive in the C-suite, but I did have the experience of, of, that, of that growth from a small company to something very significant. And then after I left that company, I then founded a, a boutique consulting practice where I worked on supporting health, early stage healthcare companies uh, with whatever they needed from user experience to marketing to product. And so that was in some ways, two levels of entrepreneurial in that first, I founded the consulting practice. And second, I only worked with entrepreneurs directly. So everything I've done in my career has been entrepreneurial in some way or another, but, you know, it's all prepared me for the, for the CEO role that I, that I have now at Waverly, which is a very early startup. And what were the biggest surprises getting involved with one of your clients like this? I think one of the biggest surprises is how much more difficult each step is than you anticipate at the beginning. I think part of being an entrepreneur is having a glass is not only half full, but glass is always full mentality. I always see everything as being in a positive light. And what's hard when you're running a company with a lot of different people is that, you know, even if you always see everything in glasses fully full, that's not really the way things are. And things are much, much harder often than you anticipate. I think raising first money for a company, especially when you're a first time CEO, and especially when you're in the middle of a deep pandemic lockdown, like we were when we raised our first capital, is very, very challenging and much more challenging than I anticipated. It's also extremely rewarding when you get through to the other side and you succeed with it. But I don't think I expected it to be quite as challenging as it was. 
I think things like timelines, I think as the CEO who thinks, who sees everything as the glass fully full, you think that everything is going to go perfectly and your timelines are going to be met and entrepreneurs always have aggressive timelines. You have to, because you have limited budget and things always go wrong. Like we've, we've had unexpected issues like with our print shop who gave us first samples off the line that looked one way. We have a, a paper ear tip that has to be taped to the bottom of the phone and to remove variables in the early days, we're making these paper ear tips down the road. People will be able to make them themselves at home. But in the early days, we're making them and our print shop made them wrong. Right. And that set us back significantly because we we had to start again from scratch. And so I think you you have this feeling that that everything is going to go great. But in reality, there are always things that happen and things you have to fix and things that affect your timelines, which, which is, which, which I don't think I I was as prepared for as I could have been. Any advice for others to learn from that? You know, I'd like to say, be realistic about your timelines. People told me that so many times and I thought I was being realistic, but in reality, things that I could not even have possibly anticipated in my worst case scenarios in some ways happen, like the print shop, just completely building our ear tips wrong. So I think, I think it's about being realistic and also being flexible and agile when the things you don't expect to happen, happen. It's about always being on your toes. It's about always watching, always listening, always making sure that you're vigilant and being responsive and acting when you need to act. And how does human-centered design inform your work now? You know, I cut my teeth at IDEO over 20 years ago. So everything that I've done in my career is informed from human-centered design. Everything we do is based on working very closely with our end users to both figure out what we need to build, what's the right thing to build, and also figure out how to build it, make sure we're building the thing right. And that's absolutely critical to developing products that we're going to put in people's hands. You can't develop a product that's really going to resonate unless you're out in the field working with people. It's, I think, the most important thing for a startup to to do, to really get out there and and understand what will resonate with people and what people want to use. And human-centered design gives you the toolkit to do that with. Do you have any advice for other founders on seeking non-dilutive funding? Yeah. So one of the wonderful things about having spun out of an academic institution and having Mm -hmm. academic co-founders involved in the company is that they understand granting organizations better than anyone since most of their money on the academic side comes from grants. And so we've been very fortunate to have had guidance from our academic co-founders to pursue uh, SBIR grants, which are a wonderful source of funding from the U.S. government. You can get them from a number of the different organizations, from the NIH, from the NSF, from the DOD. Our first SBIR came from the NIH. I think the advice that I would offer is to find a really good consultant. We had the pleasure of working with somebody who was excellent and really knew the ins and outs of how you prepare a grant better than anyone and really guided us very, very well. I think she guided us not only from which institute do we apply to, but also then through how to build out the entire grant application. So I would strongly encourage founders to look for non-dilutive SBIR funding and to find the right people to help you prepare those applications because they they can disqualify you on things like wrong font size. And you definitely don't want to do that. So 
you definitely need good guidance. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of good funding available if, if you have the right project. Thanks for that. You mentioned academic co-founders. And I've heard all kinds of stories of positive and negative. What's it like working with an academic co-founder? You know, it, it's funny that you asked that question because prior to Waverly, when I was consulting for a number of years with early stage healthcare companies, I also was able to observe multiple instances where the academic co-founder relationship worked and didn't work. And so I think I've used that to really make sure that at Waverly, we 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 use the relationship in the right way and, and, and we benefit from it. I think it can be a little bit hard because I think academics and business people, so kind of are, are, are two sides of a coin and we have very, very different skill sets and very different strengths. And so I think it works if there is mutual respect and trust and the different, the different parties trust each other to basically take on the things that they're expert at and don't try to micromanage each other when they've fundamentally come to a problem with, with very different skill sets and very different approaches. I've worked very hard from the very beginning to make sure that I have a strong relationship with the academic co-founders at Waverly. I, I talk to a number of them frequently. We're a slightly complicated situation because there's four of them and I can't uh, have in-depth conversations with, with four people, but there are a couple that I speak to very, very frequently. And it's really strongly benefited the company to have their input and their perspective and to have an outsider, in essence, from kind of the day-to-day grind, who's deeply knowledgeable about the technology and the product, be able to step in and, and help offer some perspective when we need it. So it's hard work, but it's highly, it, it's highly worthwhile if you put in the work. I also know that it's important to you to have a parent-friendly work environment. And I'm curious what steps people can take to embrace that. It is really important. I think it's important for two reasons. First of all, you know, I, I wish that I had had mechanisms to be better supported when I had kids. I didn't, right? And I want to make sure that that the parents that come after me who have children have a have a much smoother experience and have much more support. And I also think it's important because at Waverly, our whole goal is to help make parents' lives easier. And so because that's our product, I think we have to live that as well each and every day and make sure that that we have that we support parents each and every day as well um, beyond the products that we're that we're building. So I've actually been talking to a lot of CEOs, particularly female CEOs, on how they support their working parents so that I get ideas from a from a broad breadth of people. And, you know, as a startup, we we can't support people financially in the way that a massively wealthy, large tech company can that offers, you know, months, if not years of of of, of paid leave. But what we can offer as a smart company, as a small company is flexibility. So. We offer a lot of flexibility for parents. We normalize children popping in and out of Zoom meetings as as it happens sometimes. And, you know, we have our first mom who's going out on maternity leave actually this Friday is, is, is her last day. And I think one of the things that really mattered to me when I had my my children is that I wasn't on somebody else's schedule for when I have to come back. And so I haven't, we haven't put a schedule in place for her because it's so dependent on your child and 
your experience and your delivery. And so we're going to, we're just going to stay in contact and, and play it by ear. And, and with a small company, you can do that. We also support dads as much as we support moms with paid leave. We have one dad right now who he had a baby about a month ago and he's decided to extend paternity leave over many, many weeks. So he's taking every Friday off for a number of months. That I think is a wonderful way for him to bond with his child and support his family. So really, I think what a small company can offer as is, is flexibility and basically working with each person to determine a very unique approach to time with their child that that works for them. And I think that's, you know, that that's a good compromise when you can't necessarily offer the funding for somebody to just take off a whole lot of time from work. So flexibility around schedules, certainly very important. I also think this point about culture of kids coming in and out of whether it's a Zoom call or, or work environment is a really important one. I remember before I was a parent as a manager in my first startup, I really had strong opinions about keep your kids at home. And these days, I wonder if I really would have had a, a different perspective given all that I've learned. I think it's important to normalize the fact that people are both employees and, and parents. I, you know, I celebrate every time a child pops into a screen, with, with, which happens with some regularity, given that Waverly does attract a lot of parents and we like seeing the kids. And, and, I, and I think it's important. I think, especially as we've come out of the pandemic, the line between somebody's personal life and somebody's professional life has become significantly blurred for better or worse. Some people like it, some people don't, but it's what's happened. And I think that as somebody who is running a company, we have to acknowledge and accept that and help employees figure out how to manage that and, and make it okay. I, I actually had a pretty funny situation recently where my older daughter was homesick with a stomach flu and I was pitching to a venture capitalist we're raising right now. And in the middle of the pitch, she walks into my office to tell me that she was feeling worse and had to run to the bathroom in that moment. So, you know, these sorts of things happen and people need to accept it and need to accept that we are parents as well as CEOs or employees. And I don't think it's a bad thing that, that we're accepting these things in the professional world. I'm getting a chuckle out of that, how politely you described that situation. I'm guessing that the terminology might've been a little different. I'm doing my best, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you luck with the raise. I hope that uh, this investor was not, was not put off by uh, a sick child. Uh, but it's certainly on brand for you. It's you're all about serving sick children. So I hope you didn't think it was on purpose that that scenario happened. It was not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's amazing that we're ending up talking a lot about kids. You and I met in elementary school at a school that was pioneering in social and emotional learning. Do you have any thoughts on how that's helped you in your career or at the startup? Yeah, we spent eight years together in class at that school. I, I do think that the school we went to had enormous impact on the path that I took in my career. One of the things that I think is interesting is that you are the only other person I know who pursued both computer science and modern dance at college. And I think the school that we were at really encouraged us to 
break boundaries and to not feel like we had to be in one bucket or another as a human being. And I think the social emo emotional curriculum really drove that that belief in ourselves that that we don't have to, you know, be this type of person or that type of person. And I think the fact that we are able to break those boundaries and we are able to be as comfortable in a computer science classroom as we are on a modern dance stage. I think is the is the kind of flexibility and the kind of thinking that really helps you be a successful entrepreneur and a successful CEO because you need to fire on a lot of different cylinders all the time. You need to work with your people, you need to understand your company's core technology, you need to develop the business relationships, you need to think creatively if things aren't going exactly as you expect them to go. And so I think the social emotional curriculum largely played into the kind of flexibility that we've developed as entrepreneurs. It's become extremely popular in schools over the years, and I'm hopeful that it will make for better interactions at work, better ability to reach goals. And at Purpose Built, we certainly believe that those entrepreneurs that have the emotional intelligence will build better companies. I would certainly agree with you. And I'm also excited to see the huge growth that social emotional learning curriculums have seen in elementary schools. We've selected a school for our kids that is heavily focused on social emotional learning, perhaps to the exclusion of academics at times, but we think it's the right thing for early childhood foundation in terms of the growth that you are able to then experience as a person. And I agree that I think emotional intelligence is is critically important to leading a company. I, I've, I've seen a lot of companies led by people who perhaps don't have the highest level of emotional intelligence or are very analytical about their emotional in intelligence. And I think it's a lot harder to connect with people when, when you're like that. And connecting with people is, is critically important on so many levels. It's important to keep your, to understand the experience your employees are having and making sure they're happy it's important to form the business relationships. It's, it's people who form business relationships, not businesses. I think it's critically important to make sure that you're developing the right product and able to connect and listen to the end users that you're serving. So I think on so many levels, I agree with you that emotional, social emotional learning and strong emotional intelligence is critically important to being successful at leading a company. How important has your mission been in attracting the right investors and employees to the company? That, that's an interesting question, Miles, and I'm going to answer it in, in two parts because my experience with employees has been very different from my experience with investors. On the employee side, we are a mission-driven company. Our goal is to expand access to kids no matter where they are, no matter what time it is, no matter how much money their families have. We want to make sure that every child has access to the highest quality of care in that moment. And that is absolutely critical to having attracted the employees that we've attracted. If I'm honestly not that interested in people joining if they aren't bought into that mission. I think it's critical to the culture that we have that everybody is here and wakes up every single morning to make healthcare more accessible to children. I think that is core to who we are. We talk about it every day and it permeates through everything that we do and all the actions that we take. It's, you know, it permeates through the way that we support parents at the company. It, it permeates through the way that we celebrate 
children who are born. We we had a surprise baby shower last week, which was which was quite fun. We have four ba- we have four Waverly babies this year. On the investor side, it's it's been a little bit different. I started off talking a lot about the mission, and I started off talking a lot about the value of antibiotic stewardship and reducing the unnecessary usage of antibiotics. And what we found was that investors felt these these were all the right things to do. But until we started telling an economic story and showing how there was economic value from our push to increase access, we weren't quite getting the traction that we were expecting to get. And so the story that we tell with investors it's mu- is much more about the economic value of the, of the technology and the, and the value of increasing access, the value of shifting more care to virtual venues than it is about a social mission to increase access fundamentally for children. And what kind of investors have you typically attracted? We have a, a number of smaller funds that have invested in us, funds that focus on healthcare, digital health, funds that focus on female investors. We have a number of angels and angel groups that that have invested and a couple of family offices where the families have young children and understand the use case. We are currently raising right now and have a really wonderful syndicate built out. We are looking for a, a great lead investor. There's a number of funds looking at us. Mostly they're in the digital health space looking to expand the way technology can be used for 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 healthcare and expanding access in healthcare. So healthcare investors but not necessarily with an articulated mission lens to their investing. Except for you did say that some are gender lens investing. We do have some that are gender lens, that's true, but we haven't had a lot of traction with mission-based investors. If you have a, if you have introductions, please, I'm happy to to take them. I'm sure. And I will think about that. I was curious, you know, each founder has their own journey on fundraising and how they articulate the mission of the company and how much to emphasize, as you said, the financial economic case versus other goals that they may have. So I'm always curious to hear how that goes. And I certainly wish you luck on the fundraise. I want to underscore it's not a solicitation here. We're just talking about the work that you're doing as a founder. I'm also curious if you have any advice for other female CEOs and founders of startups. Have you found that by having these investors and their their focus or other kinds of experiences that you've had, do you have any learnings for others? I think it's really important to find the right investors. I think having people who will support you in building the company, having people that you really enjoy speaking with is much more important than having a check. And so I think it's hard sometimes to keep that in mind because when you're fundraising and you get so many no's, when you finally get a yes, it's hard for somebody to say no to that yes. But sometimes it's important to do that because when you have a board meeting, for example, you want to look forward to that board meeting and you want to feel that even if you're giving news that isn't necessarily as good as you wish it would be that the board is there to support you and brainstorm with you and has your back. And that's only going to happen if you are building an investor group that that truly supports you and believes in what you're doing. So I think really finding the, the right investors for you are, are critical. And also finding those few investors that are going to really serve as your guides and, and your mentors more deeply than just 
offering a check. Um, in our in our example, uh, in our story, for example, uh, one of the investors I was pitching to out of New York, I loved my pitches to him. We had a number of diligence calls, and I just thought that the questions he asked were some of the most meaningful questions to really push my thinking forward. And so after he invested and after uh, you know some time had passed, I started reaching out to have calls with him on a regular basis. And so we started talking you know, every other week, twice a month. And finally, after a number of these calls, I realized how much value I was getting from, from each call and, and asked him if he'd take on a more formal role in the company. And he was as enthusiastic as I was. And so he joined as our fractional CFO, which which has been tremendous for the company. And so I think really finding those people that are going to help guide you who have seen companies before, who see lots of different companies from their role as investors is really critical to, to making sure you're set up for success. Wonderful advice. When can people start using the product? Pretty soon. We're about to launch our early access program, which is only for people who have signed up in advance. There's a sign up on our, on our website, wavelydx.com. And we will be launching much more broadly uh, to, the, to the community in the fall when ear infection season starts. And where can people follow up with you or learn more about you online? So we're on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, WavelyDX. And our website is wavelydx.com. And would love to hear from anyone who's interested in learning more. Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to chat. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.